a thousand people were polled on a simple question. They were asked, who do you think is going to go to heaven? They, as I understand it, produced a list of names of people who were well known and just simply asked of these people, who do you think will go to heaven? As a result of that, they came up with 15 names of people most likely to go to heaven. It's a, the poll was a reflection of the era. And at the top of the list, not surprisingly, was Mother Teresa. She came in at around about 79%. Uh, the respondents to the poll figured that she was either most likely or somewhat likely to go to heaven. Guess who was number two on the list? Oprah Winfrey. It's 66%. Followed closely, as I said, it's a reflection of the times in which the poll was done. Followed closely at 65% by Michael Jordan. What the poll did show, though, and this is interesting, is that politicians didn't score very well. And I was thinking it would be interesting, wouldn't it, if you conducted the same poll and just went out and asked a 1,000 people, who do you think is going to go to heaven, list off some names. It would be interesting to see what response you might get to Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump. I would certainly suggest that their names that wouldn't, even if you didn't have the names on the list, they're not names that would immediately spring to mind uh, in people's thinking about who's going to go to heaven. And I think what that poll highlights is that we make judgments based on what we see. We make judgments based on a person's popularity. We make judgments based on what a person does. And we tend not to think beyond that. We just tend to think in terms of fairly concrete terms on this. And it usually comes down to a popularity vote. As you leave here this morning in a little while, The one thing that I want you to know is that heaven is not determined by a popularity vote. If you've got your Bibles or your reading device, I hope you have them opened at Luke chapter 23 because we're going to look at a guy this morning who was not at the top of the list of popularity. Obviously, Jesus, the crowd has turned against him at this time, but the two people, and one of them in particular that we're going to focus on this morning, were people who had been condemned to death. And we're going to look at the question this morning, who goes to heaven? We've been talking about heaven over the last several weeks. But this morning, we want to ask and answer the question, who goes to heaven? Because it's an important question. And what sort of people go to heaven? And on what basis do they go to heaven? Who goes to heaven? So here's the first question this morning. How do I get to heaven? Have a look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 23. And let's just remind ourselves of what was read to us just a few minutes ago. We read there that the criminals, uh, we're told in verse 32 that Jesus is taken away along with two criminals and they've been condemned to death. And in our reading this morning, what we have just read and been reminded of is that at the point of crucifixion, when all of the crowd and the angry mob are jeering and mocking Jesus, we read here in our Bibles that one of the criminals hanging beside Jesus begins to hurl out the same abuse. He begins to mock Jesus. He joins in with the crowd. And if you read the Gospels carefully, you will notice that in Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Mark tell us that initially... Both criminals joined in the mocking. 
both joined in the abuse. All of the hatred, all of the bitterness, all of the anger at God, at life, at people, is poured out of the hearts of these men as they hang beside Jesus. And they join in this angry mob in rejecting Jesus. But I want you to notice this. Something changed for one of them. We don't know exactly at what point. But at some point, something changed in the heart of one of these criminals. And he stops abusing and stops mocking Jesus. We'll have a look in just a moment or two as to the possible reason why that changed. But at some point, something in his heart changes, and it is a profound change. Here's the first thing that we discover in the thief's heart. We discover that there's repentance. Have a look in your Bibles. Let me read to you what he actually says. He comes to this point, his attitude is dramatically changed. And now he responds to the the other criminal who is continuing to mock Jesus. And he says... Do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Have you no reverence for the Almighty? Don't you realize that as you hang here beside this man, as we hang here, we have been condemned to death just like he has. In fact, we've been condemned for the same crime. Don't you remember that our law tells us, and criminals knew the law, Not well, but they would have known some parts of it. And you can imagine this criminal saying, don't you understand what our law says? Our law says that everybody who hangs on a tree is cursed. Don't you realise you're under the same condemnation? Don't you realise that as you abuse this man and as you mock him and as you look at him and think of him as being under the curse of God, don't you realise that you stand under the same curse of God right at this moment? This repentance. Because he goes further on. He says in verse 41, we indeed justly deserve our condemnation. You see, here's the change of heart. There is recognition, there's acknowledgement that we deserve our punishment. We are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. It is deep, profound repentance. In effect, he's calling his colleague a hypocrite. There's no reverence for God. You fail to recognize what God is doing. And in acknowledging his sin and acknowledging the fact that he deserves punishment, it's repentance. Now, what is repentance? I've talked about this on several occasions in this church. Repentance is simply a U-turn. The word repentance in the New Testament simply means that you were walking in one direction, but now you do a U-turn and you're walking in the opposite direction. So what that means in spiritual terms is that at one point in your life, if you have, if you have repented and put your faith in Jesus, at one point your life was going in this direction. You were living and doing as you pleased. But at this particular point in time, you acknowledged, you recognized that you were in rebellion against God. It might not have been massive rebellion. But you recognised that you were living for yourself and with complete disregard for God. And so you did a U-turn. And at that moment, you said, I'm now going to follow Jesus. That's what repentance is. And this is what this man does. He acknowledges here, he deserves to be punished for his crime. He deserves to be punished for his sin. It is classic repentance. It is a complete U-turn. He turns around. 
So there's repentance. But there's also confession. Notice what he says about Jesus. In the second part of verse 41, there is an acknowledgement that Jesus is innocent. This man has done nothing wrong. Now notice, notice what is happening here. At this point, he publicly identifies himself with Jesus. The crowd is baying for the blood of Jesus. The crowd is mocking Jesus. The criminals have joined in, now it's just one of them. The soldiers are mocking and gambling for Jesus' garments. The whole crowd is against Jesus, but this man now does something that is very, very countercultural. He identifies himself with Jesus. This man is innocent. It's a confession of who Jesus is. We don't know how many people heard that from the cross, but we know there must have been several because it's recorded for us here in the Gospels. At this point, at this moment of repentance, he now confesses his allegiance to Jesus. He identifies himself with Jesus at that moment when the rest of the world is against Jesus. But there's also trust. Have a look at verse 42. The man shows evidence of repentance. The man confesses that he is with Jesus. And now there is trust. This is a magnificent statement. He was saying, Jesus... Remember me when you come in your kingdom. There is enormous faith in that. He sees in Jesus, he comes to this point and he recognises and acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, the one chosen by God to set up his kingdom. Now, it seems as we look at what the text is saying that this criminal is still thinking in terms of a physical kingdom. And there is a sense in which that's, well, definitely it can't happen. This is where the faith comes in. As he looks at Jesus hanging on the cross, he knows all three of them are going to die. But there's this step of faith and trust. There's an acknowledgement, you are the Messiah, and one day you will come in your kingdom. And when you come to do that, Jesus, remember me. It's countercultural. It's an acknowledgement that he needs the mercy of God. He could appeal to Rome for mercy, but Rome will have no mercy. He's been condemned. He's hanging on the cross. So he goes to the only place where he can find hope and where he can find mercy, and that is Jesus. And he cries out to God through Jesus, and he says, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Don't forget me. Remember me. And there is that magnificent response of Jesus. I tell you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. What the thief cries out, it's just a simple prayer. It's a simple pleading for mercy, a pleading for grace. Jesus, remember me. It's a simple prayer that he cries out. How do I get to heaven? Some of the answers that people will give you are things like this. Well, you've got to pray. You have to read the Bible. You need to attend church. Other reasons that might be given are things such as, we'll do good deeds, give money to the poor, help other people, raise your family to be good, your children to be good citizens, become a a family that contributes something to society. These and other reasons are often given, and they're all good things, aren't they? There's nothing wrong with what I've just said. But here's the news. None of those things, none of them, will get you to heaven. They might help, 
in terms of you growing as a person, but they won't get you to heaven. Think about the thief on the cross, the criminal. I read this short devotional a few weeks back, and I've been looking forward to sharing it. It's just very brief. The writer of this devotional, a pastor in the US, asked this question. How does the criminal on the cross fit into your theology? No baptism, no communion, no confirmation, no speaking in tongues, no mission trip, no volunteerism, and no church clothes. He couldn't even bend his knees to pray. He didn't say the sinner's prayer, and among other things, he was a criminal. Jesus didn't take away his pain, heal his body, or smite the scoffers. Yet it was a criminal who walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus, simply by believing. He had nothing more to offer other than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was. I love this. No spin from brilliant theologians, no ego or arrogance, no shiny light, skinny jeans or crafty words, no haze machine, donuts or coffee in the entrance, just a naked, dying man on a cross, unable even to fold his hands in prayer. Who goes to heaven? People who cry out in simple faith to God for mercy. That's all the criminal does. How do you get to heaven? You cry out to God for mercy if you just want to truncate it down. So what sort of people go to heaven? If that's how you get to heaven, what sort of people go to heaven? Well... The first answer is people who need grace. I want you to notice this term. Luke uses it three times. In verse 32, uh, verse 33, and verse 39, he refers to these two men who were crucified with Jesus as criminals. That simply means an evildoer. It comes from the Greek word kakos, which sounds bad anyway. And it just simply means that they were evildoers. What is interesting is that in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, these men are described as robbers. And that's an interesting word. You see, sometimes we sing songs or we hear sermons and it's referred to as the thief on the cross. The word thief is not a really good translation. It has occurred in some Bibles over the years, but the word thief is not a great translation. It gives the idea of a cat burglar, someone who sneaks around into your home and steals or or a pickpocket, and you don't even know that it's gone. That isn't the kind of person that we're talking about here. They're referred to as criminals or evildoers, and in the other Gospels, they are referred to as robbers. Let me tell you what that word meant. That word robber meant to plunder and prey on people with violence. It meant to seize plunder from people, to rob them violently. The word was used to describe Barabbas in John's Gospel, Barabbas is referred to by the same name, and we know that Barabbas was given up by Pilate in place of Jesus. Uh, Sorry, Jesus was given in place of Barabbas, and Barabbas went free. And he is described as a robber, as a criminal. The Bible tells us that Barabbas was a violent man. He had taken part in a rebellion against Rome. The Bible identifies Barabbas as a murderer. These men, the same term is used to describe them. They are violent men. They are quite likely murderers. 
The word robber was used to describe the zealots. The zealots were the Jewish nationalists who were rebelling against Rome and they would do anything they could to bring down the Roman government. In some circles of Jewish culture, they were revered, but there were many people in Judea who did not like the zealots. They didn't like the way they went about things. They were terrorists. And these, or this is the word that is used to describe these men. It is highly likely, highly likely that these two men were colleagues or associates of Barabbas. Violent, murderous men who would do anything to achieve their aims. Think of Chopper Reed. These are the sort of men that we're talking about here. We're not talking about a sneak thief. We're not talking about someone who breaks into a home while you're not there. Violent, murderous men. And the remarkable thing is that one of them cries out to Jesus for mercy. Why? Because he needed grace. And folks, here's the thing. You might be sitting there this morning and you're saying, well, yeah, that guy needed grace. (laughs) If he was like Chopper Reed, he needed loads of grace. Here is the truth of the gospel. Do you know every one of us sitting here today, everyone watching online, everybody in our community, everybody in our world needs the same grace. What sort of people go to heaven? People who need grace. You might say, come off it. I, I haven't lived a life like these guys lived. I've not murdered anybody. I've not been violent towards anybody. There's your problem. Because you view sin as things that we do when sin is an attitude of the heart. We need God's grace. God's grace rescued this man out of the hole that he was in. And God's grace rescues us, every one of us. Because we're all tainted by sin. We're all tainted by rebellion against God. And every one of us, no matter how good we think we are, not one of us is good enough for heaven. Only Jesus was. People who go to heaven. What sort of people? People who need grace. It's also people who need forgiveness. Jesus responds to this man. He says in verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Forgiveness is a difficult concept to understand and to explain. And I think the reason it is, is because it's so... When we're confronted with the need to forgive... It just goes against the grain, doesn't it? When somebody has wronged you, you want to hang on to that? But here's the marvellous thing. Jesus forgives this man. This man cries out to him, cries out to God for mercy, and Jesus forgives. Today, today, you don't have to wait for the kingdom. Today, you will walk with me into paradise. You will be with me. When the sun sets, you will be by my side. It's forgiveness. Some missionaries to the Eskimos many years ago were trying to explain the concept of forgiveness to the Eskimos, but they discovered that there wasn't a single word in the Eskimo language to describe forgiveness. The concept of forgiveness was there, but there wasn't a word that the missionaries could come up with or could find in their language to to describe what forgiveness meant to the Eskimos. So they came up with this word. They created it. Isu Maji Jujung Nynamik. Yes, I've been practicing it for a long time. Isu Maji Jujung Nynamik. That's the word they came up with. 24 letters. It's spelled correctly. I checked it. 
Isu meji jujung nainamik. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? The Eskimo word for forgiveness. So you learn a lot when you come to this church. What does it mean? Ah. Isu meji jujung nainamik simply means not being able to think about it anymore. That's what forgiveness is. To not be able to think about it anymore. Friends, that's biblical forgiveness. What does Isaiah 43 verse 25, the Lord speaking through the prophet, this is what he says to his people concerning their sins. Listen to the words, I will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. Did you hear that? I will blot out your sins for my own namesake and I will never think of them again. Prophet Micah said this, Lord, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. What a wonderful thought. What does Jesus mean when he says, I will blot out your... What does the Bible mean when it says, I will blot out your sins? In the ancient world, when a, a writer of a letter was writing on a scroll, he would write in ink... And if he made a mistake, he would blot it out. Now, we tend to think in terms of uh, scratching it out. What the writer would do is he would take a sponge and he would bring it. The, the word wipe is better. He would bring the sponge and he would wipe away all evidence of the mistake that he had made. That's what the word blot means. It means much, uh, or a much better translation is, I will wipe out all your sins. God has gone to the scroll of your life the moment you trusted Jesus and he has wiped out all your sins. And then he says, I will remember them no more. Now, God is all-knowing. Can, how can God possibly forget? How can an all-knowing God forget my sin? Well, because when he says, I don't forget your sin, what he means is, I, I will no longer hold it against you. That's what forgiveness is, to not be able to think about it, to not hold it against you. Again, and that's what it means when we forgive somebody else. We might remember the wrong, but we don't hold it against them anymore. We don't remember it. We don't hold it against them. This is what God does for us. And Micah said that he takes our sin and he drops it in the depths of the ocean. I love what Corrie Ten Boom used to say. She said that when we become a Christian, when we commit our lives to Jesus and he forgives us of our sin, he takes all of our sin and he drops it in the deepest part of the ocean and he puts up a sign that says, no fishing. That's what God does when he forgives our sin. Isu meji jujung nainamik. What was it that changed the criminal's heart? I think it was this statement that Jesus made from the cross. There's all the abuse going on. He's joined in with the abuse. But then at this incredible moment in history, he hears Jesus say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He pleads for the forgiveness of people who don't want it. And I think at that point, that's my opinion, at that point the, the, the criminal's heart is touched. It's torn apart. And he sees Jesus for who he really is, the one who will bring forgiveness. So here's what you need to do. If you want to know how to get to heaven, and it's not just about getting to heaven, but 
if you want to know what it is to be in eternal relationship with Jesus and to spend eternity with him, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to come to a place, you need to come to that place today where you say, Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner and from now on, I'm doing a U-turn and I'm going to follow you. I'm turning my back on my sin. You need to repent. You need to confess. You need to come to Jesus. You need to confess your sin. You need to ask for his forgiveness. And you need to confess him as, as your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sin. Confess him as Lord. Confess your sin. Seek his forgiveness. And then put your trust in him. The word trust means to actively rely upon it. It's not head knowledge. The head knowledge is dropped to the heart. And so you have the knowledge of the gospel and some of you are in that place. Some of you have heard the gospel for years but you've never moved from the place of just believing in your head about the gospel to trusting. And what the issue is, is you've got to move from that place where you say, I believe that Jesus died for my sin, that he paid the penalty for my sin and forgiveness can only be found in him. But now I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to actively rely upon him. That's what trust is, to actively rely on the finished work of Jesus. It's that simple. I like to think of the criminal on the cross in Luke's Gospel as the Darth Vader of the Bible. If you're familiar with Star Wars, remember the story of Darth Vader? Right at the end, he's been a horrible person, done, committed atrocious crimes, but right at the end, he comes good and throws the emperor down the pit and restores order. The criminal on the cross is the Darth Vader of the Bible. I think of my dad not long before he died. And I reckon he's a Darth Vader. I went, he'd had a bad fall as a result of his Parkinson and it left him bedridden for the last nine months of his life. But I remember when I went up to see him not long after the fall. And I just sat there with him because he was sort of in and out of consciousness and not in a great place. But I just shared with him the gospel again, the, the, the simple gospel. And I, I said to him, Dad, would you like to pray that prayer with me? And I'll never forget his response. He grabbed my hand and pulled it up to his heart. Folks, that's all it takes. We get so concerned about trying to get onto the words, the right words. And it's important that we understand the gospel. But folks, when the heart cries out to God for mercy, he hears. And he forgives and he welcomes you into life. Listen to these words by Max Licato. Writing on the criminal on the cross. The criminal says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. No stained glass homilies, no excuses, just a desperate plea for help. At this point, Jesus performs the greatest miracle of the cross, greater than the earthquake, Greater than the tearing of the temple curtain, greater than the darkness, greater than the resurrected saints appearing on the streets, he performs the miracle of forgiveness. A sin-soaked criminal is received by a blood-stained saviour. Today you will be with me in paradise. This is a solemn promise. I love the way he concludes, wow. Imagine this picture, wow. Only seconds before, the criminal was a beggar nervously squeezing his hat at the castle door wondering if the king might spare a few crumbs. Suddenly he's holding the whole pantry. Such is the definition of grace. If you do not know Jesus today, you might be watching online. 
You might be here for the first time today. You might have been here many times. But you've never come to a place of trusting Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. I want to lead you in this prayer of commitment. If you would like to commit your life to Christ, this prayer, if we could have that come up, please. I'm going to ask those of you who know Jesus to bow your heads. But if you don't know Jesus and you want to pray this prayer, if you want to commit your life to Jesus this morning, if you want to do that online in the privacy of your own home, I'm going to lead you now in prayer. You can keep your eyes open so that you can follow along with me in the prayer. But this is a solemn moment, but but hear this. If you cry out genuinely from your heart this morning for mercy from God, he will hear you and you will step into life today and you will be guaranteed of eternal life in heaven when you die. Those of you who are Christians, I ask you to keep your heads bowed and to pray. Those of you who would like to follow along in the prayer and commit your life to Jesus, pray with me and may God bless you over this Easter weekend. And when I finish praying, our team will come and draw our service to a close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I know I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. From this moment on, I turn away from all my sin and I ask you to forgive me I understand my good works cannot bring about this forgiveness it is only by what Jesus has done in dying and rising for my sin I put my trust and faith in him. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to take control of my life as my Lord and Saviour. In your name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, please tell someone. And please contact us at our office. We would love to give you some material to help you grow in your Christian life. God bless you this Easter.